2: So I think, again, this kind of gets back to vulnerability. So one is if you already have some condition like diabetes where your kidneys are already affected in some way. So that puts you at higher risk with heat just if you become dehydrated and you're not sort of maintaining your hydration status. So you're, we're, we're starting with a hit. Yeah. Um, and adding the hit of heat. And then heat itself for a young, healthy person who's an outdoor worker or somebody who's outside very frequently like you're talking about where you're not thinking I'm vulnerable because you think you're young and you don't have any known history of any problems, but the heat itself over a long period of time, in addition to potentially other things you're exposed to, pesticides, you know, other things Mm -hmm. that may be around are also kind of putting a hit on your kidneys. And then you kind of get into the cycle of dehydration and more heat and dehydration and, and, and that causing problems over the long run.
1: That, that's exactly right. Yeah. And another thing to, to also consider as well is just thinking about young healthy, other, you know, young healthy people who um, uh, might end up being at risk of the negative health effects of extreme heat. It's really where we start thinking about exertional heat stroke. So um, this is this is the the, the the time that we're actually having this discussion is is. Um, really relevant to this particular question, you know, as, um, as colleges and, and high schools around the United States start having their, um, their summer training camps for, for things like f- American football. There's um, some great work that's been done at the University of Connecticut, led by Dr. Uh, Doug Kasser, um, and he leads up the uh, Corey Stringer Institute. And um, they've done a lot of work around trying to create awareness around the risk of exertional heat illness, particularly in young athletes particularly at this time of year, and then trying to really advocate for the the most effective um, uh, responses to try to treat exertional heat
2: illness or heat stress. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Enjoy the show.
1: Victims to ensure that they actually don't end up um, uh, uh, dying from, from that particular condition. Um, so in that particular case, you don't have a, an individual who has underlying infirmities. They don't have underlying um, uh, re- uh, reduction in their thermoregulatory function, but the exposure is so excessive that it ends up being a problem. So um, if we take the case of American football, which I think is a, a, a very relevant case, is that you've got a bunch of guys who are uh, being very competitive. They're trying to you know, make, the, make the make the cut to make the team. So they have got high levels of motivation. So that behavioral capacity is probably reduced a little bit because they don't want to listen mm-hmm. to what their body's telling them. So they will keep pushing up, mm-hmm. pushing. There's, there's also the, the cultural aspect around it. Um, want to be the tough guy, uh, all, all that kind of thing, that can play into uh, the issue. And then, of course, their they're they're, they're exertion levels are very, very high. The large muscle masses are, are contracting a lot. They're generating a lot of heat from metabolism. And then the ability to dissipate that heat from the body to the surrounding environment. It's not just impaired by the environment because it's hot and it's humid in many places, but also they're wearing a lot of equipment as well. And that equipment serves as a barrier to to, to heat loss as well. Now, there are certain provisions that have been introduced over the last 20 years or so, particularly since the death of Corey and the excellent work that KSI have done and and others, where um, now for the first few days of a training camp, um, the amount of equipment that the players wear is reduced. And it's this idea that they're giving the players a, a progressive ability to adapt to the environment before they don full protective equipment and uh, therefore are exposed to greater levels of stress. So this notion of, of, of generating some kind of acclimatization response to that. But it's it, I think it's pretty fair to say that pretty much every year there's there are some tragic cases where um, you know, a high school football player or a college football player will end up dying of heat stroke. And, and it's really because of this confluence of, of factors where you've got mm. highly motivated, very fit people, but um, because of the activities that are engaging in the environment they're in, Culturally, the environment in, the thermally, the environment they're in, plus the nature of the activities they're doing really places them at quite a high risk.
2: I'm so glad you brought up children because this wouldn't be a podcast that I'm on unless we were talking about children in some way. So I have three. Um, Do you have children?
1: Uh, I do. I have a a two-year-old daughter who is, um, uh, yes, uh, a handful, but she's a lot of fun. Yeah.
2: I have a two year old daughter and then also <laughs> she she's our covid covid baby and then a eleven year old and an eight year old and I always think about them during this time because it is like you said sports season starting up, and kids just in general you have to remind them so often to do basic things like drink water or you know get out of the sun or and things like that so what should we be advising our you know, schools of or our teachers to to watch out for when our kids are because we want them out there, we want them playing. I don't want to be the mom who's like, no, no recess. So, so what should we be saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, there, I think it's then we, if we take it back to the the reason that people of uh, different people are vulnerable to extreme heat. You know, uh, there's that physiological component, and then there's the behavioral component. I think the, the the jury's still pretty much out on whether children are actually at a greater physiological vulnerability. In fact, I would say we have a large study that's funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council here in Australia, that we're doing it at the University of Sydney right now, where we're really trying to get a conclusive answer to the question of whether children of different ages are actually at greater risk of overheating due to thermoregulatory impairments. That's been a long held assumption for quite a while. Um, uh, there's been some uh, uh, rowing back of, of 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 some of the perspectives on that, relatively recently, but there still hasn't been any conclusive evidence. And we like to talk about morphology as well, high surface area to mass ratio, but the the the, the, the chances are if you if you do the modelling, you do the physics, it's it's probably not a, a massive issue. I think the, the biggest okay. is, is the. I is
2: like the, that. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes. It's the
1: laughs> okay. Behavioral component that you're describing there. So, so, um, you know, it's this idea of uh, uh, as we age, we become a bit more aware of, of 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 things that are going on. We think, oh, it might be a good idea to seek heat to seek shade right now. Um, I might want to slow down, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Those behavioral ad- 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 adaptations in in children i think uh, i would propose are probably uh, blunted a little bit um, just through their 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 exuberance for life and uh, <laughs> their, their lack of You're experience so
2: nice. <laughs>
1: the lack of experience of dealing with these type of hazards in our, in our environment so um, so i think uh, I, I would i would probably say that it would make um, uh, 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 quite a lot of sense from a protective perspective is just to try to remind them of, of the things that they should be thinking of, that they should be doing and also providing them with, with the resources that they provide adequate shade. Um, you know, if, if they're having um, if, if they've got you know, a sports match or something like that, if there's a opportunity to reschedule it for a slightly cooler time of the day, or even a time of the day where the sun isn't, the, the radiation from the sun isn't, isn't as strong, because that's a, that's a huge component. Um, There are things like that we can do that can keep them uh, much safer uh, from a a heat stress perspective uh, while um, not impairing their ability to do what they want to do. And it stops us from being the bad guys
2: as well. (laughs) There's something that we talked about before where you, 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 I don't know if you've coined the term, but you use the term self-dousing. And after I talk to you about it, I mean, that's the thing my kids love to do. That is the thing that they will do. So can you talk about self-dousing and and where that fits in as a strategy? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm glad that you you brought that up. So um but I'll just take take it back to when we were talking about different strategies that the most vulnerable can use, and we said we were talking about increasing airflow with devices like fans, and there is a there's a there's a limit at which those devices are are helpful, and above that limit they can end up being being detrimental. And the question is, well, what can we do when we exceed those limits? What what else is left? And what we've shown through um, lab studies that we've done here at the University of Sydney. So just to so your your your, your listeners. Um, uh, can get a picture of what we do here. So we have, much like m- many physiologists, we have a climate chamber. It's a, it's a state-of-the-art built facility where we have the capacity to simulate any kind of condition that we really want from, from a th- perspective of a thermal environment. So we can uh, sim- sim- we can create a certain temperature. We can couple that with a certain humidity. We can even add the effects of solar radiation uh, to simulate these kind of outdoor environments very carefully. And then we can then systematically assess the way in which different strategies Reduce cardiovascular strain because we measure it. Thermal strain because we measure core temperature. Rate of dehydration. um, uh, We can measure bloods and all this kind of thing. So we can have a very detailed way of understanding how those um, the the impact, the physiological impacts of those different strategies. And one of the things that works uniformly in hot, dry environments, warm, humid environments is this idea of self-dousing. So um, I don't think we did coin the term, but I'll be happy to take it if um, <laughs> but I'm sure I, I, I'm sure somebody else thought, thought, thought of it. First. Um, but basically, it's this idea of taking water. And of course, you want to drink, drink, drink it for maintaining hydration. But another thing that you can do that's really effective is that you can pour it over yourself. So if you place the water over your skin and a lot of it will drip off the body, but it gives you it does the same thing as sweating effectively. You're place you're artificially placing water on the skin surface which will then sub- subsequently have an opportunity to evaporate and then that will have an enormous cooling effect. plus it also reduces the necessity for you to produce sweat yourself, which incurs its own physiological strain as well. So um, we've done some we've done a couple of uh, papers where we've we've tested the, the intervention which uh, worked really well. We published a paper in jaMA in 2019. Um, which is a preliminary lab, lab study uh, where we assessed the efficacy of this self-dousing. And we showed that it would re- really effective at reducing cardiovascular strain and increasing thermal comfort um, as well. And we also did an- another study that we published in a journal called Temperature, where we um, did some calculations and said, okay, the question is, if you're an athlete and you're running around, um, you've got a certain amount of water. Should you drink or should you pour or should you do both? And uh, what we were trying to figure out was what proportion of the water would actually need to evaporate from the skin surface to have the same eff- cooling effect as drinking an ice slurry drink, which is regularly advocated as a way of keeping cool. And I think the amount that needed to evaporate was about 6% or something like that. Such is the, the power of evaporation. The amount wow. of heat that we liberate through the evaporation of moisture from our skin surface is absolutely enormous you know, compared to conductive heat exchange, if we were to drink a cold drink and you you lose heat to to that that fluid to warm it up to body temperature, you lose far more heat through this evaporation process. So it's a very effective way of, 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 um, of keeping cool.
2: Interesting. So if you had this cup of said cold ice slushy water drink some of it and then pour the rest on your body. Is that, that that's what we recommend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're chronically dehydrated, <laughs> of course, but if you're not chronically dehydrated, dehydrated drink to thirst, um, especially if you, you know, you're going to get access to a bit more water further down the line and then consider throwing, throwing some of it over your head and you know, and, and then, and it doesn't have to be cold either. That's the, that's the beauty of mm. evaporation is that, so you do have some convective, sorry, conductive heat exchange that would warm water up. Um, but the, the, the real bang for your buck that you get is the evaporation, so that's that phase change from from liquid to gas, and that carries with it an enormous amount of latent heat energy. Um, so if it's if it's if it's 20 degrees Celsius water, 30 degrees Celsius water, actually doesn't matter as
2: long as you can, as long as that water can evaporate. So tap water, you could put tap water on yourself.
1: Yeah, so actually that's a really good point. So in um, a lot of the studies that we have done and and are currently doing is that we want to make, we want to create the conditions that are relevant to um, normal living circumstances. So often what we do is that when it comes to utilizing water is uh, we usually provide it at a temperature that you would expect to get out of a tap so um, mm. instead of having to, you know, mix it with ice and all the rest of it, because that would require you to have access to ice and have access to electricity and, and the rest of it. So um, this is why we always use tap water. But the temperature won't really matter all that much. So
2: That's great. I mean, I will... I, one of the other things that you talked to me about, I, I feel like this all this conversation happened just so that I could survive, and maybe I could, I should say, my husband can survive us not having air conditioning because uh, temperatures are also. I mean, are, I think. Uh, uh, we're also hot in other ways, not just temperature-wise. We're more angry, uh, we're yeah. more frustrated at home, yeah. and so you can certainly notice how um, how hard it is to kind of just live with this for a few days, you know, b- beyond which we we were sort of comfortable with. But we realized we had a ceiling fan, and we had not turned it was just decorative for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> then we were like
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: Ah. (laughs) I think I remember this. (laughs) We need to turn that fan on and it... Sort of changed our lives in terms of just being more comfortable, like you said. <laughs> that oh. it's thermal comfort; it's not just the the what the thermometer says. I mean, the you know the thermostat says yeah. on your wall. Yeah.
1: So, um, well, I'm re- really really pleased to hear that some of the um, some of our research findings <laughs> are proving useful, and uh, you're still alive. So uh, clearly, it works. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: uh, uh, so so uh, yeah, one well, one thing I, um, I I just like to kind of uh, visit here is. Um, This idea of coupling extra air air movement with air conditioning. So we we published a paper in Lancet Planetary Health in April of this year. And uh, what that study sought to do was try to um, quantify how adopting a series of fan-first strategies will impact the amount that we turn to air conditioning to maintain our thermal comfort. Uh, and also the electricity bills that are associated with it and the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with it. So if we take the principle that the reason that we use air conditioning is to maintain our thermal comfort, and if we can then accept that if we move air, what we know from a a lot of thermal comfort literature, so I had the privilege of of working alongside my colleague, Professor Richard DeDeer, who's a world-leading expert in the area of thermal comfort, um, is that a lot of Richard's Uh, research and his colleagues in his area have demonstrated that if you move air a a little bit more what we can do is it it elevates the ambient temperature that you feel uncomfortably warm at so if we accept that that's the driving force for the the thermostat set point on our on our air conditioner what this means is that if you move air indoors at different speeds and we tested the effects of different speeds um, and this these are just simple settings on a ceiling fan or a pedestal fan Um, It enables you to to adjust the set point of the thermostat of your air conditioning unit by, uh, by about three to four degrees Celsius higher. So what this means is that your air conditioning throughout the course of the day, where it heats up and then cools down later on, over the course of the day, you'll turn your air conditioning unit on later. It will turn off earlier and you will feel exactly the same. Because you're maintaining the same level of thermal comfort by augmenting heat loss through convection as opposed to just um, changing the temperature difference between the air and the skin, which is what an air conditioning unit does. So when we looked at those th- that scenario and we applied that scenario, and we used Australia as a case study and used a year's worth of high resolution data to figure out exactly how much of an effect it would make on the amount of electricity that's used. For AC use in people's homes, and subsequently what the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions were, we found that in terms of electricity use for AC cooling throughout the year, by moving air at a speed of about 0.8 meters per second with fans, which is uh, about a medium setting on your on your ceiling fan, so probably the speed that you had your your fan at, it reduced electricity use for cooling by 70, percent 70. Wow! And um, that's. And taking into account the way in which that electricity is, gen- electricity is generated, it reduces the greenhouse gas emissions of the whole country by about 1%, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a 1% change of everything that everybody's doing, uh, which mm. is which is pretty substantial for something that is such a simple, adaptive strategy that people can use. So what we need to do next is really work with people to try to find out ways in which we can encourage people to adopt that behavior and then generate demonstrate that it can actually drastically reduce people's electricity bills for AC use, but also the the strain that is placed on electricity grids when, um, when we have these peak extreme heat events uh, and we reduce the risk of things like brownouts and blackouts, etc.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, well, you have to kind of... Really, get that that message needs to to get out. I think because we have so many office buildings and so many places where it's just there's a number on a thermostat, and that's what people. And you you've you told me this, which is that like, we're really just working on cooling the air rather than cooling ourselves and being comfortable in that in that space.
1: That's a great point. So, and, and one that I think we should emphasize here on this call is that that um the, the principle of air conditioning is that we are cooling the temperature of all of the air that envelops us and for the purpose of cooling the person ultimately what we're concerned about is a hot person or an uncomfortable person so we need to redouble our efforts of folks and there's lots of people doing work in this area obviously not just us but um focusing on finding ways in which we can modify the thermal status of the individual without thinking that we have to change the entire environment and, um, and and that's where we can really drill down into far more sustainable ways of doing it, and also individualised ways as well. Is, is if you know in that office building, you've got that thermostat set at you know sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Half of people too hot, the other half are too cold. Um, people are putting on scarves and, and, and woolly hats. Uh, other people are uh, 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 take, taking off clothing, and um, no one is really all that. Well, very few people are actually all that satisfied with that environment so not only would we be able to do mo- find more sustainable ways probably more effective ways of keeping people comfortable and and, and cool
2: i could talk to you literally for like hours but I, I don't want to take up even more of your time but i am this has just been such a great conversation i have two more questions for you if sure. you're if you're game yeah of course yeah. Um, One, I want to talk more about this climate chamber because I am fascinated. Can I come? And secondly, like, what is it that somebody's walking into? Are you walking into a room? Are you? I I don't even know what I'm envisioning.
1: Right. Okay. So, um, well, uh, anybody who's interested can visit our our website, the Heat and Health Research Incubator at the University of Sydney. Um, We have some some videos of of some studies that we're doing there. One 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 uh, in particular where. We're actually simulating the working environment of a ready-made garment factory in Bangladesh in our chamber in Sydney and exposing participants to these conditions, recreating the work conditions and trying to identify which sustainable cooling strategies are most effective. But you can kind of see the, 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 the setup there, but I'll describe it for you now. So um, and I, one thing I should um, also add is that while our climate chamber is a, is a, um, uh, a custom built um, uh, facility, and it's all really, really a medical facility, um, which was based on the specifications that I was able to provide. Um, there are, there's a it's, a, it's an entire subdiscipline, thermal physiology, and there's a number of thermal physiologists uh, across the world that do this type of research, and we all have, to a greater or lesser extent, a um, access to similar uh, facilities such as this. So, um, a climate chamber is, um, so our climate chamber is, a, is a room. Um, it's a sealed room with windows and, and things like that, so you can get out and in. Um, uh, it's three meters high, and the floor space is four meters by five meters. And um, what we can do – so you, you walk in. It's like, it's like walking into a big um, uh, fridge, maybe, is probably the best example, but we typically make it warm. And then uh, all of the, um, uh, the machinery that uh, conditions the temperature and the humidity and, uh, and the wind – um, is above the ceiling, and then at each end there is a, um, uh, a an air gap of about 75 centimeters wide on each end, and there are fenestrated walls. We, we condition that air, and then it comes through that fenestrated wall, and then it keeps it relatively laminar, and we have very good control over the the, the conditions. So as you're walking in, you'd be it'd be like being in a big room with um, with predominantly metal walls. Um, and uh, what we do in those in, in, in that chamber is that a lot of the work we, we do is we focus on simulating heat waves of the past based on weather data and saying, okay, mm. so one of the ones that we really focus on is this Chicago heat wave of 1995, which was responsible for hundreds of heat-related deaths. And we say, okay, if we have a, a replay of those conditions, what type of sustainable cooling strategies could the most vulnerable use to most effectively reduce their core temperature. So we measure their core temperature in a variety of different ways, reduce the cardiovascular strain that they might experience. Um, a lot of the studies that we we, we, we conduct, we do with um, clinical populations. So um, we don't just expose young, healthy people to these conditions. We um, recruit people with cardiovascular disease, for example, people on different types of prescription medication. So we really understand in a systematic way the role of these different conditions and how they alter what our advice would should be to people who are exposed to these types of conditions in, in, in the real world. Um, wow. And that enables us really to, 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 to identify what works and what doesn't work. Um, so that's really kind of the, the principle of, of, of the climate chamber. One of the things that we're also really quite excited about is that we have an opportunity to deal, to, to work with, collaborate with people in environmental science. So I'm a physiologist. So um I don't really have much of a an idea of climate modelling and things like that but uh, there are experts that 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 specialise in that and they can predict what the heat waves of the future might look like according to different mm. carbon emission pathways one of the real challenges for people right now is to understand what the impacts of future warming is actually going to be. We have these heat waves and it's all very uncomfortable and a bit distressing sometimes, but a lot of people are kind of thinking, ah, oh, you know, one or two degrees Celsius increase in global temperatures. What, what is that really going to do? But what we know is that the, the health impacts are gonna be predominantly concentrated from a heat perspective anyway, in these heat, extreme heat events. And the extreme heat events are gonna become more frequent, they become more intense and they're gonna last longer. And What we can do is we can simulate at least the intensity of those future heat waves. We can take Mm. now, expose people to those different versions of the future and actually show physiologically what it's going to do to them, what it's going to do to their capacity to perform a a simple work task that we take for granted now, um, their ability to to play sport, the ability to even survive. And then we can actually provide data now to show, look, this is what the future is going to look like from a physiological perspective. And I think that could be quite powerful to try to really persuade people what are the consequences of our actions now may have in, you know, for 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 our children when they when when they're your father's age, for example, um, you know, what is that what is that going to look like for them? And I think that's that's really important. I'm so excited. Yeah, I. That's
2: a that's amazing. I mean, so we know that Europe is burning, millions of Americans are under heat advisories or and have been over the past several weeks. India, the Indian subcontinent um, suffered through it for over a month. China, yeah. um, millions more there are are affected right now. Are you shocked? Are you sort of is this surprising to you in the sense that this is happening globally already, or is this just sort of what we should have anticipated?
1: I mean it's certainly alarming isn't it? Um, uh, but I think what it demonstrates is the the urgency with which we have to act from a mitigation perspective, so thinking about what we need to do now to 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 stop this runaway train getting completely out of control and then the second component is what do we need to do to adapt to ensure that the legacy of human activity to date, we know that's going to inevitably result in a certain um, scenario moving forward for at least the next 30, 40 years from a heat wave, perspective of heat waves and not just hot weather. And we know that's going to have devastating health impacts, particularly on the most vulnerable. The question is, what adaptive strategies can we provide to ensure that we can adapt to that warmer future uh, using the information and the tools that we have to hand One of the things that's really concerned me, uh, and and it it alarms me, is the quality of information that we are are giving the general public
2: in terms of what... Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Enjoy the show.
1: Type of strategies they should be using to protect themselves, particularly, particularly the most vulnerable against extreme heat. A lot of it is still based on conventional wisdom, um, hearsay, uh, and there are there's, there's um, growing mm-hmm. evidence, particularly from the from the thermal physiological community, demonstrating. How things do and do not work, and I think translating that information into changed public health guidance is is an absolute priority. And this was the focus of one of the um, papers that um, we published as part of the Heat and Health Lancet series last year, the second paper reducing the health effects of of extreme heat and hot weather, which I had the privilege of leading in, and associated with that with that um, uh, with that paper we were a series of infographics that the Lancet generated, we've got this one infographic that summarizes the eight things that you can do that are currently, that, that, are, that are based on the best scientific evidence that's available right now. And using that and, and, and promoting that as the evidence through which we should be advising what people should be doing, I think would make a lot of sense because that is actually based on the scientific evidence. Um, but a lot of what we're telling people at the moment and through various avenues doesn't seem to be um, informed at least by the latest scientific evidence, and in some cases, it's not—it's not informed by any evidence whatsoever.
2: Well, that's—I I think that's great. So we will make sure that we link to the that infographic in our show notes, and oh, that you. from our end, we're doing as much as we can to to get that message out there. Because you're right, we need to know what to do now. Um, and I really feel so lucky to have been able to talk to you not once but twice um, in a short period of time. So I really so appreciate your time.
1: My, my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, having me on.
2: Of course, anything else that um, we will certainly talk about and show and share that infographic. Anything else that you think that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Do you know, there's one thing that we, that we haven't touched on, which I think is worthwhile commenting on is... Um, There is a a preoccupation with temperature Um, and we know from the epidemiological literature is that that seems to have the highest associate or strongest association with negative health outcomes but what we do know is that there are actually six components that feed into heat stress risk at the individual level ambient temperature which is of course measured in the shade that's an important thing for people to keep in mind if you're out Mm -hmm. in the sun then in the middle of the summer Black globe temperature, which is takes into account the direct solar radiation and reflected solar radiation that's in the environment, that can be between 10 and even 15 degrees Celsius higher than ambient temperature. There's humidity, which we've touched on as well, and the importance of that because it impacts the ability of sweat to evaporate from the skin surface. Um, and then also um, how much wind or air movement there is in the environment. So there's four environmental conditions that determine heat stress risk, not just temperature, but thermal radiation, so cloud cover effectively, um, the humidity, and also how much wind is in the environment. And then there's two personal parameters that we can modify at the personal level to, to uh, in some cases, um, to affect that overall heat stress risk. That's what we're doing and what we're wearing. Um, and there are certain scenarios whereby the level of activity is dictated by our job or the sport that we're playing or, or whatever it may be. Likewise, the, the clothing that we're wearing. Um, but those are the six components that, 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 are, that really combine to determine heat stress risk. And I think that's really important when it comes to people evaluating their own risk um, at an individual level. It's not just thinking about what the temperature is, but thinking about, OK, well, mm-hmm. what is the humidity today? Um, is it clear or is it cloudy? Is it, um, uh, is it windy or is it still? And uh, what am I doing today? What type of activities am I engaging in? And uh, what kind of clothing do I have to wear or what can I, you know, what, what do I need to wear how much can I reduce that from the perspective of, of the overall heat stress risk?
2: Uh, that's really great information. I think that sometimes as doctors we also tell a lot of people, you know, listen to your body, let your body guide you, which in some ways is is. I think, helpful information, even in this situation. But I think from this conversation, what we have, what we can say is that sometimes you might not even recognize things because it, it catches up to you that you, you know, you're you're doing things or you're wearing things, um, you're in direct sunlight and you, you feel fine one minute and, and things can change so, so quickly.
1: Actually, but let's, I'll just finish off with just an extra point just to, to add to that is um, the way in which we perceive our thermal status is predominantly through thermoreceptors that are in our skin. So our, if our skin's warmer, our skin's cool, then we perceive that it's, it's warmer or, 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 or cold and we take behavioral action. But if we think about some of those pathways through which we get sick, particularly the, the heat stroke pathway, a lot of that is associated with how hot our core, our body core is. And we don't really sense that all that much. Mm. So we can, it's quite, it's quite easy to, to almost trick yourself into thinking you're cooler than you actually are inside. And it's how hot you are inside that often matters. Um, So that's another thing just for people to, to keep in mind a little bit.
2: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.